Basketball has come full circle in Canada. It was invented by a Canadian. The first NBA game was in Toronto. And now, an NBA championship. Your 2019 NBA champions, the Toronto Raptors. And our MVP, following an iconic buzzer beater and a dominant performance in the finals. Your 2019 Bill Russell Finals MVP is Kawhi Leonard. Me here after the tray with open arms, man. It made my experience that much better. This group of guys let me do what I do on the floor. Coach Nick let me do what I do. And now we got a championship. Thank you. And like they said, enjoy this, enjoy this moment, and have fun with it. Aha! So Arden, it's been a while since we've been here recording our usual ATL. And since you've last been here talking Toronto Blue Jays, been covering a different team and arguably a much more exciting team. Would you um, argue that? Yeah, than the Toronto Raptors. That's but, an argument uh, you'd make. Yeah, it's good to have you back though. And uh, now the Raptors are wrapping up their season. They're done, of course. They won the NBA championship. And we'll talk Blue Jays, but I want to hear about the Raptors first. I mean, you were there. You saw them win the NBA championship. What's it been like the last few months, couple months covering this team? Feels like a blur a little bit, right? Like we we were just kind of talking about, you know, the Joe Carter Classic, which I it's like sort of a an event that they do every year at Rogers Center. And I feel like, oh, that happens like in the middle of the summer. And then I just look down and I'm like, oh yeah, it's June 19th. You know, like I feel like I blinked and it was the middle of June. That eight weeks where it was like every day in Raptors land, like you just don't really process the time is going by and like things are happening in the outside world. Like you're just in this bubble where it's all you think about and all you talk about and all you do, which is great. But then I just like have like come out of that time machine now and I'm like, oh, it's like the middle of summer. It's actually kind of crazy. We're approaching the halfway point of the season for the Blue Jays. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. No, That's no, we, insane. And we actually are. Like, <laughs> yeah. We're looking ahead now, planning our next episodes of, of At The Letters, which, of course, is brought to you by the all-new 2019 Ford Ranger. And one episode, two episodes from now, we're looking at July. So that's the point that we're at with the baseball season. And it must have been, I mean, even as a fan watching the Raptors, you know, there was just this crazy sense of momentum. You didn't know what was going to happen next. But being up close to it, I mean, that that must have just been taken to another level. Yeah, I mean, you're so like in that bubble and you're so consumed in it. Like it is definitely a different experience than, you know, kind of watching it from afar. There's obvious like parallels between what happened in 2015-16 with the Blue Jays and what's happening now with the Raptors. You know, like a name like Kevin Pillar for people who were living and breathing with those 15, 16 runs. I mean, even like Kevin Pillar is going to hold some reverence for Toronto sports fans for a long, long, long time. Like there's going to be a day in 2035 or whatever, when Kevin Pillar gets a little, you know, pregame welcome at, at Rogers center and people are going to be giving him a standing ovation. Right. Cause they, 
totally average run of the mill ball player, right? Like a, a major leaguer, but not like a, you know, not like a superstar or anything, but somebody who, you know, he's going to go to restaurants in Toronto for the rest of his life and eat for free. Probably similar story with a guy like Norman Powell or a guy like Fred Van Vliet, you know, like these are just kind of the names that fans get attached to in these runs. And you can even look at moments, you know, Kawhi Leonard hitting the shot over Joel Embiid in, in Philly, you know, the obviously the walk-off buzzer beater, you know, like the two three-pointers that he hit against, you know, Golden State that Fred Van Vliet called, you know, FU shots. Like, these are moments that people will remember for a really long time, just as people will remember Josh Donaldson's race to home plate, you know, just as people will remember Edwin Encarnacion's walk-off in the wild card. So it is kind of cool you know in that sense to be you know be there to witness some of these memories and some of these characters uh and protagonists that you know people are going to remember for a long long time and who are going to be unimpeachable in toronto sports lore for a long time much as you know kevin pilar and you know to a certain extent like ryan goins a guy who was a part of you know that 15 run in a way he got a standing ovation at Rogers Center when he came back with the Kansas City Royals, didn't he? He sure did. Yeah, I remember John Gibbons saying at one point, I think it was when Batista came back and someone asked Gibby if he thought that Jose Batista would get a standing O. And he's like, well, Ryan Goins got one. So <laughs> pretty sure that at this point, every one of those players from that team deserves a standing ovation. Of course they do. I mean, those guys made huge impacts for the Blue Jays. And now, I mean, you look at what those guys did on the Raptors, someone like Kawhi, like that's legend status. He is a legend in Toronto, regardless of what happens from here on, what he did to bring a championship here, that's just incredible. And guys are going to filter out to other teams. You know, right. like, is Fred Van Fleet going to play with the Raptors for his entire career? Probably not. Like, there's probably a timeline somewhere where he's coming back with the Detroit Pistons and the Raptors are rebuilding. Not unlike Edwin Encarnacion is going to come to Rogers Center with the New York Yankees. That's crazy. On his third team since being a Toronto Blue Jay and one of the better hitters in baseball this year. Leads the AL in home runs. Incredibly. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but like maybe building a like borderline Hall of Fame case, Edwin Encarnacion. It's not crazy. I mean, he has 400 home runs, more than yeah. 400 homers. There was a point in time in the Blue Jays history where if I had told you that Edwin Encarnacion is going to have a better career than Jose Bautista and is going to play longer than Jose Bautista, you'd be like, no, of course not, right? Like he is kind of, you know, they're both great players, but Jose is A and Edwin is B. We're at a point now where, I, you know, Edwin is putting up a better career than Jose. That's pretty crazy to think. Yeah. And both of them responsible for some of those crazy moments yeah. um, that you mentioned. Bautista, of course, the bat flip, but Edwin Encarnacion in 2016 hitting that walk-off home run uh, off of Ubaldo Jimenez and walking the parrot as the Blue Jays beat the Orioles in that in that wild card game. That's one of those moments that we'll remember forever. And I think the Raptors run without exaggeration provided many of those similar moments and just a similar feeling across the city and to some extent across the country of just these fans being so excited for a team that legitimately had a championship chance and obviously in the Raptors case made the most of it. Well, and that's the other similar thing is that it's a nationwide thing. It's not just in Toronto, you know, like during that Blue Jays run, like we kind of forget, but like people in Lethbridge and people in Victoria and people in Sydney, Nova Scotia, were just as excited and pumped and we're all gathering to watch this stuff, right? And I'm sure montages were made of those walk-offs, you know, or of the seventh inning in game five of the ALDS against the Rangers of people in bars and people at gathering places who were going nuts, right? Just as you saw montages of, you know, the Raptors run and the Jurassic Parks that people had across country. I think it was 36 
across the country, plus another one in Rockford, Illinois, where Fred Van Vliet is from, where right. they had like, you know, 3,500 people out in this, uh, I shouldn't call it a small town, it's it's a city, but I think there's 100,000 people there. But still, like, it's pretty significant that, that that happened. It's a nationwide thing. Like, that's the cool thing about when a, you know, a, a Canadian team in a non-hockey sport goes this far, right? And it has to be baseball or basketball. There's no Canadian NFL teams. People don't care enough about the Toronto Arrows or the <laughs> Toronto Rock or whatever. So it is cool that the the country kind of comes together and you kind of feel it coast to coast. You know, it's definitely something that will, you know, regardless of what happens, if Kawhi signs with the Clippers and the Raptors win 44 games or bounce in the first round next year, to me, I'm kind of like, they still won. Say Masai goes to Washington, Kawhi goes to the Clippers, like they still won the championship. So that just justifies every decision that they've made in a way. I mean, to hire Nick Nurse, to go after Kawhi, like these decisions seem really justified by the fact that they won this championship and did so by defeating a borderline dynasty in the Golden State Warriors. It's similar to the Blue Jays in that it was a short term bet. You know, like the Blue Jays contention there, like that 2015 16, that was a short term bet, you know, on a bunch of veteran guys, right? Like David Price. Short-term bet, you know, Kawhi Leonard for you know might end up being a very short-term bet. <laughs> Let's hope not, but yeah, guys like you know Kyle Lowry and Mark Gasol are you know kind of they're on the downward slope of their careers, just like Jose and I guess not Edwin. Yeah. <laughs> we would have said Edwin, just like certain Blue Jays, you know, R. A. Dickey and you know, Mark Burley, like just like certain you know big contributors to those Blue Jays runs were. You know, someday someone's going to need to build like a sustainable winner in this city. You know, like a team that's like can be a franchise like Golden State or like the Spurs, you know, like uh, the Yankees, right? You know, like, like some of these teams that are just like in it every year and competitive and nail everything from the international market to drafting to, you know, scouting to, you know, player acquisition to spending the way that a team in a city as big as this and a city that has proven time and again, if you win, you can make a whole bunch of money off of us. Like you see the lineups for Raptors merchandise, right? And it was like that. When the Blue Jays were good in 2015 and 16, even now, like, look out at the, you know, who was actually at the Rogers Center. Like, look out at the people there. How many people are wearing, you know, jerseys, jerseys from those runs, right? right. How many people are still wearing Bautista jerseys to the ballpark? It's soon, a Stroman jersey is going to be, you know, he's not going to play for this team anymore, right? Like, people bought a lot of merchandise at that time, got really passionate, watched a lot of television, went to a lot of bars, like, really got behind it if you win in this market like you can do really really well uh there's an impetus there to spend on a team yeah let's hope that that happens across the board in toronto and hope that the management in charge spends wisely um because there's uh, a big difference between spending for its own sake and, and picking the right players of course when i was watching this i probably didn't really believe in the raptors until maybe game one of the nba finals until um, after game one or before yeah, it? after game one. Yeah. What about you? When did you think that they actually had a chance? It's a good question. Because they lost game one to Orlando, and I never worried at that point. I sat in the studio with uh, Donovan Bennett and uh, Daniel Michaud. I forget who else was on that podcast. And I was like, the Raptors are fine. And everyone was freaking out about Cal Lowry because he had a terrible night shooting-wise, although he did all the other little things Cal Lowry does. And I was like, the Raptors are fine. They're not going to get beat by the Orlando Magic. And then they go down two to one against Philly. And that was probably, you know, the diciest moment was like at, when they were down two to one against Philly. And if they had gone down three to one, that could have been really, really bad. And they still only won that series by the skin of their teeth. 
And then they went into a 2-0 hole against the Bucs. So it was kind of interesting that the Raptors weren't as worried about the 2-0 hole against the Bucs as they were 2-1 to Philly. Hmm. Just being around them is, is this kind of interesting. So there were these moments throughout the playoffs where it was like, oh, okay, it's not going to work out. It was a good run, right? Like there were so many, you got to get lucky. That's something that Masai Jerry will tell you. Like you got to have some luck. Like you got to have Kawhi Leonard throw up like a, you know, a, a shot from the corner, like on the run that bounces four times, miraculously drops in. Like you got to have a little bit of injury luck with Golden State, right? Like, you know, you got to have the you know, Kevin Durant, not a factor in the series. You know, Clay Thompson leaves the series, plays, you know, doesn't play in one of those games because the, the Warriors are arresting him. You got to get, you know, to be good, you got to be lucky. Like, luck is an element of it for those Blue Jays teams. Look at, you know, game six in Kansas City, right? Kansas City had some pretty fortunate luck. Just even that team as a whole that won a championship with, like, you know, contact. (laughs) Yeah. On the topic of luck, like, I agree. You need a combination of luck and skill. There's no question about that to make it through to the finals and to win the finals in any sport. You know, I do think, though, like, when you look back at, who won the 1985 Stanley Cup or the 1988 NBA Finals? Like, either you win it or you don't, right? Like, at a certain point, once you're looking back at history, does anyone care, like, if if the Atlanta Braves were banged up in 92 or, you know, the what-ifs that Philadelphia Phillies fans might wonder about the 93 World Series? Like, the Jays won. So, at a certain point, you just won it. And, yeah, Durant and Clay Thompson would have helped, but the Raptors won. All that stuff gets washed away with time. People who like scrutinize Nick Nurse's timeouts or whatever, like it all gets washed away. Like it all goes, you don't remember that stuff. When, when you look back on this in 10 years, right? In 2029, when we're, you know, doing the 10 year anniversary of the, the Raptors championship of their first title and the first one in Toronto in however many years, nobody's going to, you know, think back to like, you know, oh man, like Kyle Lowry really forced that shot. Yeah. <laughs> or like, yo, I can't believe that with five fouls, you know, he tried to strip so-and-so behind, you know, beneath the basket and took that risk. Like all that stuff just goes away and it just turns into the result. Yeah. Right. Which in a way like kind of, you know, speaks to so what we were talking about earlier with some of the risks that, you know, management takes like trading for Kawhi Leonard, like firing a coach of the year, like trading a bunch of prospects for a David Price and for a Troy Tulowitzki. Like you take those risks because if you win, people don't look back on it and say, I can't believe that Alex Anthopoulos mortgaged the future, right? If they had won, if there was a World Series banner hanging at, at Rogers Center right now, the, the discourse would be so different <laughs> yeah. about some of those trades. So you take those risks because if you get the payoff and you get the result that you're after, you're unimpeachable. Right. And clearly, you know, there has been criticism directed toward Alex Anthopoulos in the years since he made those trades and Matthew Boyd now looking like an excellent starter for the Detroit Tigers. But I still think like you have to make those deals. And I think even if you didn't get the ultimate payoff, you got a significant payoff in terms of returning energy to baseball in this city, in this country, um, going on two consecutive ALCS runs. I don't think that happens without, and I know it's crazy to say now, but I don't think it happens without Tulowitzki, and I don't think it happens without David Price. So you had to make those moves. At a certain point, you have to accept an amount of risk that like you you might feel is unacceptable. You know, like you you just have to do something really risky if you want to win big in professional sports. Like you just have to. And like the Blue Jays are, you know, that's they've said what they're gonna do and they're doing what they said they're gonna do right now. And that's why a lot of what they're doing is cautious. 
But in two years, if they're still being really cautious and if they're not making risky moves, you know, if they're not gambling, if they're not saying like, yeah, hey, you know, just for the sake of example, like, yeah, Kevin Smith might turn out to be a really good player someday. It's been really good. We had to trade him to get X pitcher, you know, like if they're not rolling those dice, that's when like the criticism of this front office needs to be turned up in a big way, because I think right now you're going to be cautious and you're going to be smart and you're going to be disciplined. But at a certain point, when it's time to win, when it's time to go for it, like when it's time to get these wheels moving, you have to take some risks. You have to. It's a must. And I mean, do the Cubs wish that they had Eloy Jimenez right now and Daniel Vogel back? Of course. Those guys are good players. They're producing in the major leagues. But they had to make those moves to acquire pitching for Montgomery in the case of Vogelback and to acquire Quintana in the case of Jimenez. And that's a point that Jed Hoyer made recently when he was asked about losing Eloy Jimenez. This is what you have to do. And I think the closer that you get to the ultimate prize, whether it's an NBA title or a world championship, then the bigger the risk is that you're willing to take on. And I think that's why we saw Kevin Durant come back, even though clearly he wasn't a full strength. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, Clay Thompson comes out and shoots those free throws with a torn ACL. Like, if you're that close, you're willing to make sacrifices that you otherwise wouldn't. And on a smaller scale, that's why you see teams pay more for saves and for closers at the trade deadline than you would in the offseason. It's because you're getting closer, so you're willing to pay more for a marginal advantage. It might cost you your job as a manager, you know, like as somebody who's in charge. But that's kind of what you sign up for. Because if you do just the the prudent business school, like, you know, highly analyzed like thing every time, like if you compute the the cost benefit of every move that you can make like you're never going to take that big swing when you look at masai ujiri i mean from the outside like i'll tell you my perspective is like this guy seems incredible like to have this vision to have this boldness to execute it this seems just so impressive to be able to make those steps from going with the DeRose and casey raptors to turning it into a championship team what's your sense of him what do you think the sense of him is within the industry around the team yeah, he's obviously you know a coveted guy and a highly respected guy in basketball. Um, he's had missteps, right? Like any executive's going to if you've been in this long enough, right? Like look at the Damari Carroll deal, you know? Like he's had missteps for sure. Just you know everything that he swung on this year, he he hit. You know, had some pretty fortunate injury luck as well this year. When we talk about luck, like the fact that you know Kawhi Leonard coming off of a nine game season, like got through a full year. Played 60 regular season games, I think. And the Raptors, you know, still finished second in their conference and did really well in games where he didn't play. And then was able to play every game of the playoffs and play the most minutes of any player in the playoffs, which is like something that people aren't talking about enough. Like this guy had a bigger workload than anyone. Clearly playing hurt, you know, coming off of a year when he didn't play at all because of a very severe injury. You know, it was kind of brilliant the way that was managed and the way that that worked out not losing Kyle Lowry at any point in this playoff run. He was playing hurt, had a really bad thumb injury, but you know they were able to shoot him up and wrap him up and get him out there, right? OG Ananobi is really the only guy that they were without, and there were times in this run where it was like, man, they could really use his length right now and his athleticism. But then you get a Norman Powell who steps up, right, and had some pretty good run of play. And you get Fred Van Vliet who was unconscious in the finals. There were times during the playoffs where we were talking about like, can they even put this guy on the floor right now? Because he looks lost defensively and he can't hit a shot to save his life. And then it just turns around in, in a heartbeat and like regression hits like, like a wave coming from the, <laughs> like a tsunami, you know? like a tidal wave coming over him. And all of a sudden, you know, he's shooting like 50% in the finals. So Masai Jerry, just every move that he made turned out 
fantastic, man. Like Mark Saul trade looks brilliant yeah. right now. But, you know, the Mark Saul trade happened because Masai Jerry didn't get Nikola Miritich. And that, you know, there was a point where Masai like went to bed thinking Miritich deal was going to be done the next day. And he wakes up the next day and that deal isn't there anymore. And so he has to pivot to Gasol and restart discussions that he had had with Memphis about a deal, by the way, that originally was going to involve like Cal Lowry for Mike Conley. So it's not only the moves he did make, it's moves he didn't make, right? He didn't trade Kyle Lowry at the deadline and, and repaired his relationship with Kyle Lowry, a guy who, you know, things were very frigid and very rocky with him for a while, but if he had gotten Miritich, I mean, maybe things go a lot differently, right? It's kind of like, you know, Alex Anthopoulos and some of the moves that he didn't make. If he got Zobrist, oh, man. maybe that goes differently. No, exactly. And Rowdy Telez is in Oakland right now, and the Jays might have a very different outcome in 2015 if they have Zobrist on that team. It is pretty crazy to think about those things. As you look back at this run, there are a lot of great moments here. Obviously, you mentioned a lot of them. I think for me, obviously, when they won, it was probably really cool. Yeah. One of the one of the more memorable moments of being a Toronto sports fan, Toronto sports observer. And then also that game four, when they go up 3-1 on the road, winning that second game in Golden State, that's when you you know you start to think, wow, this is pretty crazy. But what about you? When you're you're there, you're up close. I mean, you're you're seeing this unfold like day by day, practices, shoot arounds after the game. What stands out to you as you look back at this run? This is so hard because, like, I'm almost like I'm still kind of in it in a way. Like, I just right. co- I just got off of covering the parade. Right, the parade was less than 48 hours ago as we record this. So, yeah, I guess maybe which was like its own thing. Right, the last thing I'd ever do is complain about my job. But right. I've worked every day for like two and a half months, 12 right. to 15 hours a day with travel cross continent, like all over the place. Like, I don't know who I am anymore. Right, right. so like. I couldn't tell you like the best moments of my life <laughs> right now. And when you do this job, like you don't really step back and take stock of it and enjoy it. Like I try to, if I got like just 24 hours to breathe, <laughs> I would like maybe like just sit down and figure out, you know, okay, here are the, the moments. Here's something I forgot about, you know, but when you're just like in it and it's just happening, like you're just riding this roller coaster and you don't really... You don't have that perspective. Talk to me in September, I guess. Yeah, you haven't had that weekend at the cottage where you're just sitting there reflecting. Absolute unbelievable privilege to get to cover this, right? Like it's it's on like something I'm sure I'll remember for the rest of my life. Like it's incredible getting to cover 2015 and 16, right? But like remember 15 and 16. Remember how tired you were at the end of those playoff runs, right? With the travel you're doing, oh yeah, and the amount of like mental energy and like you know physically you don't feel great at all because you're eating crap at arenas and airports. Remember that Texas Rangers food we ate? Yeah, yeah, that was like not healthy. <laughs> exactly, not healthy. No, yeah, Texas sized portions. Like, good luck trying to find food as a vegetarian, right? Like, no chance. I'm not stepping on the scale anytime soon because I am aware that like my health has deteriorated <laughs> over this playoff run, right? right? So, and like you know, we're two guys who like to take care of our health a little bit and like like to look after ourselves, and I know for a fact that I have not for about 10 weeks. Right. So think about how tired and like worn out, exhausted you were after those runs. That was three weeks. This was like eight, maybe maybe borderline 10 when you think about like the end of the regular season and how intense things are getting going into the playoffs. My job is amazing. I love it so much. I'm exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. You can, <laughs> you you can kind, of, kind of tell. Yeah. Um, like I'm rambling incoherently right now. <laughs> no, we can understand. But yeah, I, th- I think that it makes sense. And, and I will say like, when I think back to those 2015-16 runs, great career highlight for sure on a professional level, 
at the same time, like, was that fun? Like, fun's not really the right word for it. You know, it was exhilarating and stimulating and memorable, but it wasn't fun in the same way that for me, because I had nothing to do with the coverage of the Toronto Raptors, right? So this year, my friends are going out, watching the games. I'm like, Every time you, them. you watched, you had a beer in your hand. Of course. Yeah. yeah I'm, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Whereas in 2015 and 16, I watched zero Blue Jays baseball with a beer in my hand. And you're thinking about how you're going to write about it. Yeah, of course. You're answering emails. It's, yeah. it's work. And, and you're coordinating with people and you're thinking about, all right, how am I going to get this angle that nobody else has? And you're trying to like, how do I do my job really well? And you're not at home. You know, you're yeah. not in the comfort of, of your own house, your friend's houses. You're just in a different city, a different country, whatever it is, time zone, all those different things. And... It's really cool, of course, but then it was such a different experience for me this time to be watching a Toronto sports team make this run, and I'm just like, this is great. I just get to enjoy, <laughs> like, the text messages that I'm sending have nothing to do with work. They're just like, hey, like, to my friends or colleagues, just being like, wow, this is crazy. The Raptors are going to do this, as opposed to, you know, texting a TV producer, a radio producer. Yeah, where am I going to meet you? To yeah, do that where we, yeah. yeah, exactly. And so it's, it's a very, very different experience. Hey, Grange, what are you writing? Okay, right. I'll write this. Yeah, right. You feel a weight too when you're writing about that stuff of like, I want this to be good. Of course. Uh, you know, Edwin Jackson gets shelled again. You know, I can write that, but am I going to really try to make that like as good as possible? <laughs> am I going to get that done? You know, like when it's game five of the NBA finals, right? And, you know, the Raptors just lost by a couple points in like the dying seconds. It's like, I want this to be good. Like, right. I want what I write to be memorable. Because everybody is, and also, like, the attention is at its highest, and there are a ton of great media covering the Raptors, and, like, you want your stuff to be good, right? Like, you want your stuff to, it's impossible to stand out because it's such a, like, ocean of content, but you want to do something that's maybe a little bit different than what other people are doing, or, like, just maybe a little bit more interesting, or, like, a different angle a little bit. There was such an absurdly uh, vast amount of really good Raptors content being put out throughout this playoff run. Like, I mean, just from all outlets, from Canadians, from Americans, from people who were there with me on like, you know, January 26th against the Knicks or whatever, when there were like four people in that room, like, what are we going to ask Nick Nurse today to people who, you know, dropped in for the finals and parachuted in. Like there is so much good stuff being produced. So there is a bit of a weight to it too. And a bit of a pressure that perhaps you don't feel when it's, uh, you know, Jacob Wagus back on the mound at the Rogers center. Yet, if you're talking the NBA Finals, even reading that stuff would take longer. I had to prioritize what I was consuming because you couldn't consume all of it. It was too much, right? So I had to like kind of whittle down like, okay, like these are the writers, you know, or like these are the podcasts or whatever because there was just too much. And then you'd spend all that time consuming all that stuff and then you're like, oh, wait, I have to produce something now, you know? So you don't even like, you got to leave yourself enough time to like think about something and conceptualize it and produce it and da 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 So like fun isn't the right word for it. But like the greatest thing about this job is it doesn't feel like a job. You know, right. and the greatest thing about this work is it's not work. You know, like it doesn't feel like you're going to work. And the fact that like, you know, you're you're working 12, 15 hours a day every day, like doesn't feel like a chore. You know, like it feels like you're like ready to go. Like you want to go do it. Like that's the greatest thing, but you wouldn't call it fun necessarily. And you don't experience it in the same way that like a fan does. Before we move on to Blue Jay stuff, I do have one fan type question for you about sure. the Raptors. Kawhi Leonard, is he going to stay? Clippers, we've got Raptors in the mix. You, you hear that the Lakers aren't. Like, obviously, I want Kawhi to stay, but if he goes, then whatever, he's still a legend here. In a funny way, like, them winning the championship makes it easier for him to go. Yeah. You know, because he, like, he did it, right? 
you won the title. Nobody's going to be upset if no. he <laughs> leaves because you've got the band. You're going to raise a banner yeah. at Scotiabank Arena, you know. Like, and Kawhi Leonard did that. It doesn't happen without him. So I, it's almost easier for him to go. Before the season, I thought he was going to go to the Clippers. I still think he's going to go to the Clippers. Is there a chance he could come back? Absolutely. The thing is, n- nobody but him knows. You know, and his inner circle and him and his inner circle are like very quiet and very about their business. So the next two weeks are going to be, you know, a series of, well, Kawhi's leaning this way or, well, Uncle Dennis told so-and-so this and so-and-so told someone else that or, you know, he signed up for a, you know, a Hudson Bay card or something like that. Right? Like there's going to be all these, nobody knows. No matter what you hear the next two weeks. Nobody knows. And we're not going to find out until Kawhi Leonard wants us to find out. But he just in, does his own thing, man. He is totally his person, you know, and he's not going to let anyone else change the way he wants to be and he wants to live his life. Right. And in the case that he doesn't return, then he still gave us such an incredible run. Obviously, you've been in trade rumors that will probably continue. Is that something that you try to tune out? Is that something that you are aware of at all? It's impossible not to be aware of it. I mean, I wake up and socials are blasted. There's talk everywhere in the clubhouse. It's kind of around 24-7, so uh, definitely aware of it. I'm in a really good place mentally where I'm really not bothered by any of it. Kind of able to lock it in when I need to. Just been focusing on my mind a lot on and away from the field. Ben, it's been so long since I've had a chance to talk about the all-new 2019 Ford Ranger. It's been a while. Available with an FX4 off-road package with off-road tuned monotube shocks. So you got to get those in your life. It's been a long time since I've uh, had a chance to talk about Toronto Blue Jays pitching, which is probably a good thing, just considering the state of that pitching rotation right now. We can start with Marcus Stroman, who obviously is comments after his uh, latest fine outing made some news. You were there. Was he, did it take a lot of prodding to get Marcus Stroman to open up like that? Not really. I yeah. asked him about the trade stuff to begin with because that was what I was writing about and I just wanted to get his thoughts on it. And then all of a sudden we start hearing some you know, pretty interesting thoughts, some pretty candid thoughts. And I mean, you've, you've made the point before, we like it when athletes are candid and when they answer the questions that we ask them. And so it was interesting to hear that Marcus Stroman would definitely not be surprised to be traded. And basically reading between the lines is, I think he expects to be traded. Like, what's he doing here? Because he understands the business. He's known that he's been in trade rumors for a long time. It's not like all of a sudden this week he woke up and went, oh my goodness, I might be traded. Like, this is something that people we've been talking about for a long, long time. And Marcus Stroman's very aware of what's said about him. Is he almost kind of feigning ignorance a little bit here? I don't think he's feigning ignorance. I mean, I think if, if you'd asked him a couple weeks ago, he would have said the same thing. I think that Stroman has known, as you said, since last year it was a possibility. Over the winter, it was something the Blue Jays were openly talking about, that they would listen to offers on Stroman and Sanchez. So he's well aware that it is a possibility. And it seemed to me, and again, I'm reading between the lines here, but it seemed to me that there was more of a sense of acceptance around this than I've seen from him in the past. And even his one quote where he says, um, they've been throwing my name around and tell you talks all the time. doesn't seem like um, I'm going to be signed here to a long-term deal. So it's just something that you kind of have to come to terms with. You know what I mean? Like I said, I love this team. I love Toronto. That sounds to me like someone who is coming to terms with the reality or the likelihood 
that he is going to be traded at some point in the next six weeks. Maybe there's something we don't know or some discussions that we haven't been privy to, but my understanding is that the Blue Jays and Marcus Stroman's representation have not had much engagement on a long-term deal or, you know, any kind of baseline, you know, conversation that they've had, surface-level conversation, like, has not gone well. They have not lined up on value. Credit to Marcus Stroman for wanting to stay in Toronto, right, and being, like, an American really good baseball player to come to Toronto and be like, hey, I want to sign here. Not always the case, you know, like not always, not necessarily something that happens all that often. And him saying, yeah, I want to pitch for this team and I want to front this rotation. I want to be the guy. I want to be on the stadium, this and that. I just don't know why he would ever have thought that there was an extension coming for him. Other than the fact that he's a really, really good pitcher and the Blue Jays should want to extend him and should want him to be around. But I like my understanding is that extension talks really have been non-existent. I would share that uh, impression. Yeah, I think... With Stroman, it seems to me like frustration that this Blue Jays team as a whole isn't at a different place, isn't going in a different direction. I think that it's easy for anyone to see. I mean, this team is already more than 20 games below 500. So this is not a good baseball team. There's a lot of frustration around this team for various reasons, various good reasons. And I think that's more what it is. Like, I think if Stroman were even more candid than this, and, you know, I, I don't know that the media environment necessarily permits for this kind of candor, but if he were really able to be honest, he would say, yeah, I get it. They have to trade me, of course, but it still would be jarring. The rumors still would be frustrating. I don't know that for a fact. That would just be my impression of, of how a player on this Blue Jays team might feel knowing that, you know, there are going to be trades coming in the next few weeks. Yeah, I just think he must get it beyond the level that he is currently expressing. And the thing is, there's got to be a lot of people interested in his services no at this trade deadline. When you like look at the way he's pitching this year, I mean, he's having a season that's like almost as good as his 2017, which was like a really, really good season. And you, you know, Marcus Stroman is just kind of like he's been up and down. But when you look at the last four years of production, like you take him from the the beginning of 2016, right? So 2015 tears up his knee, comes back pitches and playoffs, whatever. It's just put that season aside and go from the start of 2016. He's had 100 starts since then. He's 100 games. Beautiful. Round number. 3.96 ERA. A guy who puts up a sub-4 ERA over 100 starts with more than 600 innings pitched. I mean, it's not that common. And you kind of ride the waves with Stroman because he has these ups and downs. He has these times where he loses his feel for his sinker, right? And and he has the, these times where he's you know giving up a lot of hard contact and he's kind of figuring it out. But he also has these runs where it's like, hey, I'm introducing this new pitch, and hey, I'm messing around with my timing, and hey, I'm doing this and that, and he's you know looking borderline unhittable. And in the aggregate, when you look at just the like lump volume results over those 100 games. An ERA below four, we're looking at a 2.7 walks per nine, which is terrific. 7.1 Ks per nine, which isn't that high, but you factor in the fact that he's got a ground ball rate in that time that's in the high 50s, and you think that, you know, okay, you give up that contact, that's fine. Give up, ground balls are great. Ground balls are outs. And he's not giving up a lot of home runs either, which is supposed to be the thing with him, which was the knock on him coming in, because I don't know if you've heard this, He's on the shorter side and he was supposed to like give up these laser beam home runs. He's given up 60 home runs over those 600 innings. That's fewer than one per nine. Yeah. Stroman's been just really good. And I think when you watch him now, he does resemble that pitcher that we saw in his peak seasons in 2016, 2017, end of 15. Like he does resemble that guy again, where 
He's getting the ball on the ground. He is fielding his position so well. I mean, you see that in his most recent start against the Angels. He's such a really skilled fielder out there. You pair that with someone who gets ground balls. Gold as the glove per- winner. Well, Forgot about that. Right, but yeah. it, it does help. And, and it's not just, you know, for a fly ball pitcher, a guy who strikes everyone out, maybe it wouldn't matter, but he actually gets a ton of ground balls, so it actually helps in his case. Yeah. Like, those are two very complementary attributes. So I, I think that... Strowman is valuable for all those reasons. He's valuable because of his contract status under control through 2020 and only making $7.4 million this year. And so when I look at this trade market as it appears right now, I think Trevor Bauer is more valuable as a trade chip and Madison Bumgarner to some teams would be more appealing. But I think Strowman's right in the conversation with those guys. And depending on the team, Strowman might have more appeal than Bumgarner or more appeal than Bauer. The thing the Blue Jays need to do is they need to do better than they did for Jay Happ last year. And obviously Jay Happ, older pitcher and a guy who was, uh, you know, like a very, very strict rental, like even though he ended up staying in New York, though the guy who was, you know, a pending free agent didn't have the extra year of control that Strowman did. You know, you look at the return from that trade in the rear view and, you know, with hindsight, yeah, it doesn't look great. Blue Jays need to do better. So for you, does the ask like start top 100 prospect or is that even like a little too aggressive? No, that's not too aggressive. Yeah. I think that's reasonable. Yeah, I think that you start with the top 100 prospect and you add two, one or two pieces to that, to that. Right. Like you can't get, Billy McKinney and Brandon Drury might prove us wrong in the course of the next 12 months, but what we've seen in the last 12 months is really disappointing. Mm-hmm. You know, McKinney back with the Blue Jays now, but didn't really hit even a AAA after being optioned. And, you know, you've seen the skills, you've seen some versatility, you like the fact that he can play right field and first base, but the bat's not there. Same with Drury, the, the bat is just not there. So yeah. that's a very disappointing return. And the potential is there, like for Drury, we have seen these like kind of hot periods, you know, like a, a week or two, and they haven't been long enough, and his body of work hasn't been good enough, but there is something there that teams see in him it's is he going to put it together and is it going to happen is kind of the question like the and billy mckinney you can see the athleticism potential you can see what maybe you could do in in you know in the outfield and on the base pass just hasn't happened though and if they, if this is what these guys are going to be the blue jays did really poorly for jay hap we can't say that's what they're going to be they could like you said they might prove us wrong they might turn around we've we're in toronto man we saw josh donaldson turn his career around jose bautista edwin and canassian who earlier we were talking about as a hall of famer uh we've seen these guys turn their careers around so it could happen but right now the return on that deal doesn't look good enough and so the blue jays with marcus stroman now like the pressure is amped up for them to really get something valuable in return you would think it's got to be a top pitching prospect, right? Because that's obviously what this system needs. But then, like, if your best offer is position players, again, do you have to take your best offer or do you have to get pitching? I think you take the best offer. You yeah. know, they're not close enough that they're putting finishing touches on a team right now. It's not like, you know, to go back to the Raptors, it's not like, oh, we need a big man who can pass. So, okay, we need to get Marcus All. Like, yeah. They need talent. It doesn't. They're not close to putting together the final version, this polished up version of the contending Toronto Blue Jays. So I think you get talent. Now, of course, there is an organizational need for upper level pitching, far more so than there is for position players. And realistically, there are some limitations, like a Josh Naylor, a big guy who might not, you know, have a position going forward. Yeah. When you already have Vlad and Telez, like that's maybe at that point I veer away from that kind of player. But barring that, I think yeah, you just go for the athletes, you go for the talent. Clint Fraser, yeah, that'd be great. You know, and and he was recently optioned when the when the Yankees activated Stanton. Brian Cashman saying that 
that's not to slight Frazier, um, although he's had his ups and downs even within the Yankees since being acquired by uh, New York a couple of seasons ago. But he's pretty hitting pretty well when they optioned him. Hitting great. Yeah. Like he's got like what an 850 OPS, hitting yeah. 270. He can play a little defense for you. Has history with Atkins and Shapiro. I think that's a very logical and fair starting piece for a trade. What a weird timeline that would be. Marcus Stroman on the mound for the New York Yankees uh, in the ALCS with uh, Edwin and Canacion at first base. Tulo on the bench. <laughs> He's wearing that jersey, cheering them on. Kendrys Morales is, you know, well, maybe he'll be DFA'd by then, but who knows? The best of all of them, Gio Urshela yeah. on the bench. Jay Happ, Jay Happ and Marcus Stroman. I mean, it's it's weird, but this is where we're at with these Blue Jays. Or is Stroman on the mound for the Astros pitching to Edwin Encarnacion in pinstripes in the ALCS? I could see that. I could see that. And you know what? Stroman hinted, like he's already made some changes to his repertoire this year. And so I hesitate, you know, when we're saying he's the same guy and he's replicating that, he is in a sense, in another way, he's doing it differently. He's throwing a ton of sliders. Yeah. He started to throw his fastballs up in the zone. I wonder what it would be like for Houston with their you know, talented team of off-field support staff to get their hands on Stroman and see what he can do. Because it worked for Cole and it worked for Verlander. And there's so many directions you can go with in Stroman because he throws so many pitches, right? And he does so many different things. Like, it's not just like he's a fastball slider guy, you know? Like, it's not, there's a cutter in there. It's a changeup that he's toyed with. There's a curveball. Like, the way he changes his delivery, the way he, you know, is able to put a lot of English on his breaking stuff and, like, seemingly, as you alluded to, locate his sinker both down and up and be successful with it. There are so many possibilities there for their analytical staff. From a Blue Jays standpoint, when you're talking about the return for Stroman, not only is there pressure because of the J-Hap trade and you know, not really getting the most out of that, also Ken Giles on the injured list, and Aaron Sanchez right now has Niara over five, continued blister and finger issues. I don't see Sanchez having really much trade value. I don't think you're getting much back for him. Can you turn it around in the next uh, six weeks? It would have to be significant. I don't think that at this rate you're going to get much for him. Like you could get a Jacob Waggis pack for yeah. him, but that's what you got for Aaron Loop, so you'd better be able to get that. It feels like the discussions we were having at this time last year about Marco Estrada, of like, okay, can this guy put it back on the rails, right? Like, can he turn it around? Like, can he rebuild his value? Like, kind of similar with Josh Donaldson in a way. It's like, all right, can he get healthy, and can he get back, and can he, you know, rebuild some value for the Blue Jays prior to, you know, July 31st, or last year, also August, uh, you know, the end of August. This year is just one deadline clock's ticking on Aaron Sanchez and if you're buying Aaron Sanchez at this deadline you gotta be worried about his hand of course and so you're not gonna pay full price so I don't think the Jays get much for him I do think they get a huge haul for Giles but Stroman of course will figure very prominently in all those talks Justin Smoke you know it's interesting you saw the Yankees get Encarnacion but reportedly the Rockies checked in the Rays had interest I wonder if the Rays could be a potential fit for Smoke I mean they already have Yandy Diaz who's having a great year for them but just as a piece, right, as an extra bat, someone who's relatively affordable, or you could have injuries come up. Like, Smoke yeah. is a good piece just in the sense that he switch hits and he plays good defense, or at least very respectable defense at first base. So I think there are a lot of teams that could fit Justin Smoke. It's cheap as hell, too. Right. It doesn't cost you anything. Same thing with Stroman, right? Stroman, you're paying the prorated final two months of his, what's he make, seven and a half million? Are you yeah. joking? Like, <laughs> that's available to any team. Like, that's the interesting thing about Stroman is like any team can, even like a team that's just on the cusp of contention, maybe you make the playoffs, maybe you don't. You still have control over him next year. Padres. Right? Yeah, twins. Right? Yeah. I and mean, the twins are going to make it, but that's a small market team that could afford Stroman. Yeah, the Rays. Brewers. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of interest. And so Marcus Stroman exits this rotation, and who in the hell enters it? Because right now the Blue Jays have an opening in that five spot with Edwin Jackson 
hitting the the IL with a case of not being able to get anybody out. I mean, Jacob Wagespak, I guess, is the guy, although he's recently coming back from from an injury himself. Past him, Sean Reed Foley, who I think is like missing a massive opportunity right now, just by being inconsistent. If he had been able to show some consistency this year uh, and a bit more poise in his major league, uh, you know, opportunity earlier this year, maybe that's a guy who's actually been steadily in the Blue Jays rotation. Who is entering this group? Yeah, Ryan Baraki at some point could come back and be healthy. That would be the expectation at some point in July. Um, so that would be a big thing for this team. Then further along the line, you have Julian Merriweather coming back from Tommy John, mm. reportedly throwing up to 100 miles an hour. So that's a great sign for the Blue Jays, but still not quite to that point. TJ Zoik has been rehabbing a couple of outings. One really good, one not as great at Dunedin. You'd have to figure that he'd be up in the upper minors before long. And like you said with Reed Foley, the opportunity is there for these for these prospects. Yeah. But someone has to seize it. And so far, Waggis Pack, ERA in the fives, Reed Foley walking way too many guys. Like for a team with a lot of opportunity on the pitching side, they haven't seen guys seize it in the way that you would hope. It's kind of like the outfield where there's been opportunity there for McKinney and for Teoscar Hernandez and Lewis Gurriel Jr. up Alford. and down. Right, like, you know, for Nancy Alford, who actually I think over the last like four to five weeks has been hitting really well in Buffalo. But like when his opportunity came around earlier this year, he was not. It must be so frustrating for like not only Blue Jays management, for the players themselves, that these opportunities have been there and guys haven't been able to put up the production to take those jobs and run with them. It's what you need in a rebuild is for someone to step up. Yeah. And they've had that in the case of Lourdes Gurriel Jr. They've had that to lesser extents with guys like Kevin Biggio, who have really taken advantage of the opportunity that they have had. But it hasn't happened as frequently as the Blue Jays would like. So let's talk about the guy, or at least part of the group, who put these players in place. And that's Ross Atkins. And you had the report uh, last week that Ross Atkins uh, quietly was given a one-year extension on his contract, which lined him up with Mark Shapiro with uh, their two contracts, both expiring after next season. What does a one-year extension say? Because, you know, extension, good. Hey, I get paid for another year, but only one? To be very precise here, I believe it's a one-year extension, right. and that's kind of the the sense. I know for a fact he was extended at least one year. And assuming that it is a one-year extension, then that will raise the question again, not only for Atkins, but for Mark Shapiro in 2020, because this has been now five years with uh, Shapiro and Atkins at the helm of the Blue Jays, and with Shapiro's contract believed to be expiring and Atkins' contract believed to be expiring this time next year, we will be having a discussion as far as, are they staying? Do they yeah. want to stay? Does Rogers want them to stay? Mm. What happens as far as this team? And when you think back in the last 12 months, we've seen so much turnover. We've seen so many guys rise and fall as far as their status in the organization. I think in, in another 12 months, we'll have another amount of churn and turnover and much more information. And we'll have a better sense of how this rebuild is going. So not to just totally push it ahead, but I think that when it comes to assessing this group, when it comes to determining next steps, there are a lot of unknowns still. And so, you know, I don't I don't expect that this discussion is going to go away anytime soon, but that's the way it is when you're a major league front office, I think. Well, you said you don't want to push it ahead, but that's what the Blue Jays are doing. They're yeah. just kicking the can down the road another year and they're saying, all right, let's see how this turns out. And that's why, you know, I think that like trying to evaluate not only Ross Atkins, but this front office like right now is like kind of impossible to do. Because we don't know how things are going to turn out. 
You know, like we know the groundwork that they have laid. Like we know the seeds that have been planted, uh, but we don't know if they're going to have a fruitful garden. You know, like we don't know if these plants are going to grow. <laughs> like, are we going to have some nice tomatoes? Like, are we going to be eating a nice sauce? Uh, we don't know, right? So you have to wait for some of these things to play out. You know, and even like just the way the Blue Jays front office operates, it's very collaborative and very collective. So even to say that Ross Atkins is at fault for this or he should be, uh, you know, given praise for that. And it's not really accurate because you know that other people in that front office had something to say. You know, you know that Mark Shapiro had something to say about it. You know that Ben Sherrington made some calls on it, or you know that Gil Kim talked to some people on it, or that Mike Mike Murov, you know, had some some input on it. Like it really is a collective decision. And Ross Atkins is just kind of like the forward facing like mouthpiece for you know for the for that group. So he takes a lot of the heat. That's part of that job. That's why he gets paid what he does, you know, and that's why a lot of people want that job because you are kind of the, the forward facing part of it. You're not the only decision maker and you're not the only one with input on this. So it's not even really fair to like, I just feel like the way that we evaluate general managers is changing because then, and especially in this market, like you look at how Alex Anthopoulos operated, he operated on an island, you know, like he had Dan Brown around and he had Tony LaCava, but like, it was Alex Anthopoulos, like, you know, calling Dave Dombrowski about David Price and saying, hey, let's do something here, right? You know, they calling about Troy Tulowitzki, right? This front office operates much, much, much differently. So it's kind of, you evaluate them differently, but that doesn't mean that Ross Atkins should be above reproach for, you know, some of the mistakes and errors that have been made. Right. And that's part of the job too. You can't just entirely diffuse the blame across dozens and dozens of people and processes and just say, well, we just thought it was going to be better than this. They built this structure that actually kind of protects and insulates themselves. Absolutely. And there's one of the consequences of having such a collaborative structure is that you have input from everyone. And then where does the blame go? Uh, I don't really know. And this is another effect of these long rebuilds is, you know, if you go through a rebuild, then we don't know and they don't know and that even the players don't know how long this is going to take or whether it's going to work. So as long as we're all waiting, they have jobs. And so it's a little bit different than saying we want to win this year and we are going to try to win 90 games this year. And if they win 75, well, you know that they failed in their goals. But really, if they win 75 or 65 this year, that doesn't define the success of this team. So in a sense, it buys them some time. And I think they've done what they've said they were going to do. Like after 2015, they said, hey, we're going to try to remain competitive at the big league level. And they tried to. And they made it to the playoffs and it went well in 2016. And it did not go well at all uh, the subsequent two years. But they did what they said they were going to do. They tried. And then they said after last season, we're going to take a step back. You know, we're going to take a step back from competitiveness. It's been a rather dramatic step back from competitiveness. You mentioned 20 games under 500, but... So what they said there was going to happen. They said, we're going to play young players and young players are going to succeed or fail. And we're going to get through a very, you know, bumpy road right now with turning over this rebuild. They've done what they said they were going to do. They said they were going to try to turn around the farm system, objectively a top five system. Now they've done the things they've said they were going to do. And that's good. I think that the real evaluation is going to be, do they push in in two years? You know, and I don't think next year is really going to be that year. I think it's the year following when it's okay. Now you need to make a trade or now you need to sign somebody Uh, realistically, probably make a trade, right? And now you need to go get your Justin Verlander or your Garrett Cole. Now you need to go get your Chris sale, what have you. And you need to take those risks. If at that point, if they're still saying, well, uh, we don't know, that's when it's like, all right, no, 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 no. We're not going to have this. 
Uh, and that's when the true test of this is going to be, right? Like you can build this development system, which they spent a lot of time building through Gil Kim and high performance department and a lot of the coordinators and coaches that they've hired. That's great. Is it going to produce good players? And we don't know yet. We know the structure is good, but what are the results going to be? And are you going to produce players who you can use in those trades or players who are going to impact your big league roster? That's going to be the test is what does this team look like in two years and what moves are they making in two years? And I know it's hard to wait. It's hard to be patient through that. And it's easy to just say, get someone else in here. You need a different approach. They suck. Yeah, that's kind of part of the plan. And when part of the plan is sucking momentarily, it can be kind of hard to ride that out. But I think that the fairest evaluation of this front office will come in two years. It will take more time because we have to know when they spend, how much do they spend, where do they decide to spend, um, both as far as dollars and as far as their trade chips. That's part of that cycle that we have not seen from them. We've seen them hold it together, and then we've seen them tear it down and start to build it back up, but we haven't seen those finishing touches, and of course that's an important part of the cycle. So we lack that complete perspective on what's going to happen. And I think that to one of your earlier points, it is harder now to evaluate general managers because they are not the maverick yeah. style GMs. And Alex Anthopoulos, to some extent when he was here, was that. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's the product of another era. I'm sure that if this was the 70s or the 80s right now, it would be a lot easier to sit here and say, well, he did this and this, and he's one of two people in the front office, and the other one's the secretary. So yeah, yeah we know that this is exactly <laughs> who was responsible for these trades. You know, front offices were tiny back then. And when it was one guy with every team's media guide, and he yeah. just like took Detroit's out and was like, all right, who do they have? Yeah, yeah. dealing with completely outdated information. And so part of the Blue Jays process, part of actually why they have Mark Shapiro here is to take themselves out of that era, the media guide era, and create systems and create infrastructure. And I know it sounds so boring and abstract, but of course you need to have medical staff. Of course you need to have analytical information at your fingertips and you need to have all kinds of people who can communicate between different levels and, you know, provide players with the mental and physical tools that they need to succeed. That's a must. If you're not doing that, you are way behind in professional sports. So they had to do that. And that's part of what Mark Shapiro has done. But then when we get to the question of Ross Atkins, you know, what would Brian Cashman have done that would be different? Or what would Theo Epstein pick your general manager that you believe is an excellent general manager? Andrew Friedman, who, whoever it is, Jeff Lunau, what would they have done in Ross Atkins' spot? And I think safely, we can criticize the Kendrys Morales trade and say that was $33 million misspent because general managers have to be ahead of it. And yeah. the Blue Jays were behind it there. So that's a mistake. And on the other hand, the Blue Jays have objectively built one of the best farm systems in baseball. So that's not nothing because there are 30 other or 29 other smart GMs who are trying to do this and the Blue Jays are doing it better. So that matters too. So that's where I kind of land on incomplete here. Uh, yeah, no, totally. And with their major league moves, like you look at Kendris Morales, where, yeah, like the market for that type of player changed essentially as the ink dried on that contract. So that was a mistake. You know, Jaime Garcia, right? That was a mistake. Matt Latos, that was a mistake. But none of these mistakes are epic albatross. Oh no, no, we have this Chris Davis contract now and the guy can't hit it all, right? It was totally able to be papered over. Like you can spend your way out of that. The Blue Jays did maneuver their way out of that. They are a big enough uh, team with robust enough ownership to be able to spend out of those issues. None of it is like, you know, fatal 
by any means. Like you're able to get by that. To the same token, some of their successes, like you know, we get getting Trent Thornton, right, or Teoscar Hernandez, like some of the ways that they've you know turned Francisco Liriano into this. Like we turn this washed up kind of oldish guy into this interesting you know young piece who is impacting our major league team. But those successes haven't been home runs, and yeah. none of those players are franchise cornerstones. Trent Thornton's a nice piece. If he's front in your rotation, you got problems. So like none of these players are, you know, really, really impact game changers. They're good major leaguers. So by that regard, even their successes can't even be seen as that. So like I just don't think that any of the major league moves, you know, the J Hap trade, like not doing as well as they could have in that. If Brian Cashman had J Hap and he was in position to trade him for something like if the roles were reversed, would he have done that much better? Maybe that's just what was available. I mean, that's just what the market said. I don't think that they've done anything that you can point to as like, this was absolutely brainless. I can't believe how bad that move is, yep. but they haven't done anything that you can be like, Oh my God, what a home run. Yeah. Right. No, it's true. So I think on both sides, that's true. I just think that it's like too early to really evaluate them. That's why like, I just don't think, and look, if in two years, if you know, they're coming out and saying, well, yeah, we're going to delay this by a couple of years. And yeah, we know we're about to run out of like the, you know, cost controlled Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And Bo Bichette era. And like, yeah, we're going to delay it a little bit. And oh, you know, we just didn't feel like we had to make this signing. No, none of that. You need to make bold moves at that point. If they aren't at that point, like I promise you I'll be the first guy who's saying the Blue Jays aren't being bold enough and they aren't pushing all in when they need to be. And they aren't making their team as good as it's going to need to be in the American League East where all the teams are smart now. You don't have the Orioles anymore. The Orioles are smart now, you know, and they're going to turn that thing around. You know, it's going to take some time, but like I promise you those guys are going to build a, a pretty good team there. The Yankees are already smart and good. The Red Sox, like, yeah, they could have some lean years coming up, but they print money, man. Like yeah. they have a machine that just bits out money and the Rays are, you know, have as proven of a track record of getting the most out of their resources as possible. So it's a tough ass division and the Blue Jays are going to have to overcompensate for that by acquiring even more like really good impact talent to make their team as good as possible to try to contend at a point where there could be realistically four winning teams in the division. And at some point, if you're going to be regarded as a successful GM long-term, you have to hit some home runs. Mm -hmm. And to go back to the Raptors, Messiah hit at least one of them with Kawhi. And arguably, I don't know, you throw Danny Green in there, you throw Nick Nurse in there. Like he had some big swings and connected. And Atkins hasn't done that. So that's fine at this point. And he got an extension for it. But if that continues and he doesn't hit home runs, like at some point you have to have some big hits. And the Blue Jays need those to take those next steps forward. That's another thing. The Blue Jays are going to have to hit some home runs in the draft. And they've put this development system in place that they hope is going to produce really, really good players. It's no guarantee. Like you're just trying to like nullify the crap shootiness of it, right? Like you're just trying to like, you know, deal with that. The fact that in, you know, a lot of times, like you get like Mike Trout at 17, not a lot of times, once. Once that happens. Once in a lifetime. <laughs> Speaking of Trout, just real quick, did you see Strowman's trash talk to him? No. He mouthed the words to him, or probably said the words to him, you're the best player of all time after he flew out. He's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I love. Is, that is uh, apt. Uh, very Canadian brand of trash talk. That's not trash talk. That's just like respect. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. 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 It kind of looked like it though when you saw him and then you, someone tweeted it out with the uh, lip reading. I was like, wow, Strowman said that to him. It is funny the things that guys say to each other on the field, like yeah. in the heat of the moment. Like, what it had, did he just get a hit off him? Or? No, it was a fly out to the right field. Uh, was it to like the warning track? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, the one thing I did see from this Angel series is Mike Trout's hit some balls, man. 
Yeah, well, he's facing Nick Kingham and Edwin <laughs> Jackson. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? He's the best hitter of all time. He's really good. Oh, man. He's really good. Did anything I say today make sense, Ben? Did yes. Any of it, yeah. Is any of it coherent? I think we can publish. With Amal Delich's blessing, we can publish and upload to iTunes. I haven't slept since March. Yeah. I'm tired. I'll get some rest. Back out on the road I go. I'll be in Boston. I'll be in New York next week. Uh, we'll uh, hopefully have a podcast uh, recorded in New York for you people next week. Thanks as always for listening. Our producer is Emil Delich at Amen Delich on Twitter. You know Ben. He's at Benuxon Smith on Twitter. And you know me. My name's Arden Zwelling. You can read Ben and I at sportsnet.ca. We hope you do. We hope you are enjoying this Blue Jays season. And we hope that you will stick with us. Talk to you next time on At The Letters. The Letters.